The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Find out more about the network and other amazing Alberta-made podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. I'm Dave Cornway. And I'm Ryan Hastman. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode on Sunday, February 24th, 2019, and we're also joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey, guys. In this episode, we're talking about the National Energy Board released an unsurprising report that recommends the approval of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, What happens now that we enter a 90-day period for the federal cabinet to consider approval while First Nation consultations are still underway? We are deep in pre-election season. Premier Rachel Notley made major announcements about refineries and rail cars, while Jason Kenney released the UCP campaign promises about democratic reform, health care, and education curriculum. What is happening in Ottawa with this whole SNC-Lavalin scandal? We're going to dig into that a little bit. And we'll also dig into the mailbag to answer the questions our listeners have sent in over the past few weeks. But first, let's dig into some nomination news. And the only one who's going to know anything about this is Dave, probably. <laughs> well, the, 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 the first big nomination news that we should talk about is the big news like this last week was Edmonton Meadows. Uh, we had a surprise appointment of a candidate from the, for the UCP. Uh, despite a number of candidates campaigning for almost a year, thousands of memberships sold, thousands of doors knocked on, uh, UCP leader Jason Kenney announced on Thursday, I believe, that... Uh, Thursday might have been Thursday or Wednesday or Wednesday that uh, Len Rhodes the outgoing president and CEO of the Edmonton Eskimos was being appointed as the candidate in Edmonton Meadows this was a surprise I mean this is one of the few UCP ridings still open that they haven't nominated candidates in. I think there are at that point there were seven or six left and now there are five left um, but it was surprising because there were a number of candidates um, including Arundeep Sandhu who uh, our co-guest host Natalie Pond Uh, mentioned on the podcast last week had Mm -hmm. been campaigning quite hard for the nomination so it was quite surprising that they all of a sudden appointed a candidate but we've talked about and you guys have identified meadows might be one of those battleground writings right so i imagine if ucp feels the same way uh old rich white dude is a ringer to win probably (laughs) i don't know (laughs) Uh, we saw on social media after the announcement there was definitely uh, a bit of a backlash from a number of prominent UCP members who were not happy with with this appointment. Um, people who had been supporting uh, Arundeep Sandhu in his nomination, including Natalie, Pond. including Natalie, uh, and myself, and, and yeah, Ryan, and too. Ryan, Big absolutely. Um, and I've heard that there is a, a letter or some kind of petition being circulated from board members of the Edmonton Meadows UCP Association who are unhappy with the appointment and who are disputing. Uh, a claim by, I think a claim by that Mr. Kenny made at the press conference saying that the board was supporting this appointment and the board had basically had been consulted. Uh, so this is definitely not the last, uh, last we're going to hear from Edmonton Meadows. Uh, I think in terms of, of appointing candidates, I mean, it's something that the UCP constitution allows. I think the, the party leaders allowed four, t- four appointments. For Wild Rose, the legacy parties, Wild Rose allowed eight. And yeah. the PCAA constitution had no limit. So the rest have to be normal constituency nomination battles, unle- unless no one else is running against that person. Open, oh, open yeah. nomination. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I think I think the 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 concern around this and 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 the reason why we've seen a bit, a bit of backlash is be just by the way it was handled, um, that it really happened all of a sudden. Um, I mean, you look on 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 
uh, Arundeep Sandhu's social media. And the day before the appointment, Len Rhodes' appointment, he was out like campaigning with Rick McIver, UCP MLA, basically was supporting his nomination campaign. So they didn't really even didn't seem like they even really knew this was coming. So you can appoint candidates, and I think that you know there's some that it's sometimes necessary for parties to do so. But in terms of the way this was handled, it doesn't seem like it was handled very well. I the uh, it perhaps unsurprisingly and and not instructive of anything necessarily in the real world, but Twitter responded the way you might expect. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of love for Len Rhodes. He is uh, he's the guy who failed to get the Edmonton Eskimos name changed is sort of my perception of him. And, and I think a lot of people were talking about that last week. And he's the guy who uh, let Ed Hervey leave or fired Ed Hervey and which resulted in Mike Riley now being gone. So the on product field, sorry, the on field product has hardly been overly successful during his run. In fact, we hosted the Grey Cup this year. Yeah. And somehow they managed to miss the playoffs, which is in the CFL is actually kind of an accomplishment. Um, lots of people were joking that Peter Torelli obviously was unavailable for this oh dear. appointment. But <laughs> Well, there's, know, still, there's still five open writings. <laughs> so I can't avoid, I guess, giving a few comments on this one. And um, Aaron Deep, first of all, is one of the more loyal listeners of this show among our friend base that I have. Uh, I know he listens consistently. I believe his father and him even listened to it. So it was honestly um, a very difficult day for, well, for Aaron Deep, first of all. Um, But for many of the people who consider him a friend, which Leanne and I certainly do. You know, I wrote down a few comments because I just, I think it's important to maybe put a few things there. This this whole situation um, does have some positives. It does have some negatives, and it certainly has some opportunities to, I guess, reflect and think about this for the next time. So the positives, you know, really are theoretical. That, I, and I've said on the pod, it is important. I do support leaders being able to appoint high-profile, high-caliber contestants who wouldn't be able to run nominations or win nominations. So that's, it's not a partisan thing. It's not a comment about Len Rhodes. You know, the federal conservative party once appointed the police chief of the OPP. Mm-hmm. All parties are in these positions every once in a while. I think four or eight is a good number. Like, I think it should be used sparingly. Um, it doesn't feel good what happened here because you've got a, um, a popular, well-organized candidate who was working really hard mm-hmm. you know uh, although there were other contestants Aaron Deep was going to win this one he had been working very hard had a huge number signed up it doesn't send a good message to a couple important UCP groups which is you know kind of the next generation of activists I think Aaron Deep I call him young I think he was 30 or he's about to turn 30 that's young <laughs> well in the UCP it is you yeah know, yeah sure y- you look around our convention and you count an awful lot of gray hair that's like average for the NDP caucus. <laughs> for the caucus, that's old. <laughs> no, I mean for the NDP caucus. Sorry. The, the other groups that this is not a great signal to would be Edmonton. You know, Edmonton as a community of, and I'm not talking about, so I'll get to Len Rhodes and the signals he sends to Edmonton. I'm talking about activist Edmonton, mm-hmm. like the people who are on all the campaigns, the people who people like me are going to be in the trenches with for the next 40 years. They're, Edmonton has never been a particularly strong center for the party because we are you know our our voter base comes more from calgary and it's no secret that we aren't as omnipotent here as maybe we're perceived to be in other parts of the province and former pcs you know the the merger went through but there's always 
tension. There's always going to be difficulties. Aaron Deep was really well known for being a big supporter of Jim Prentice. Mm-hmm. He worked hard on the Prentice campaign. That's when we met him, actually. So doesn't send a great message. You know, I, I don't know how you could do this perfectly, have appointments. And one of, the, one of the things I wanted to just reflect on is that people like me, maybe you guys, it's easy to sort of objectify other ridings in distant places. Like if you talk to someone and the election's two years away and they live in Calgary, or Dave, if you're talking to a colleague from work and they live in Edmonton and you're like, oh, well, you should run. You know, there's, a, there's lots of ridings. Mm-hmm. We'll just find you one or the party will find you one. Mm-hmm. But the reality is there are always local people. Yeah. Like there are no generic ridings. In my mind, Quebec is all one big generic riding. Rural Ontario, one big, but it's never, right? There are always local people who are working hard for whom this is their hometown and this is where they live. And so, you know, as I reflect on this in the future, like maybe doing it sooner would have been better. Um, maybe letting people know that it was likely going to be in Meadows would have been better. I'm not sure if you could have really put this through without stomping on the local candidate. Like, I don't know if that's possible, mm-hmm. which is just really tough. It makes it tough. I, I wish it wasn't Aaron Deep. I wanted to see him on the ballot. I was very supportive of him. I think he would have been a great MLA this time, and he will be a great MLA next time if he runs. And so I mostly I just feel bad. And yeah. this is the part of politics that is just really tough because people, you know, it's theory for everyone except... Aaron Deep and his family. Of course. And for him, it's uh, it's a year of working hard, basically being snuffed out in a moment. So anyway, those are my comments. Well, I'm not going to wait to get to the mailbag for these questions since we're talking about mm-hmm. it already. But the, uh, Josh DeGrood was asking us, um, what is, what's the appropriateness of appointing candidates versus doing, open, versus doing open nomination contests? I mean, there are clear risks, but this isn't this isn't unusual. What do you think, Dave? Is this... Is this something we should get rid of, or is it just part of the way things work? You know, this is this is how political parties operate. Um, all political parties appoint candidates. It's appoint candidates from time to time. Um, political parties are private clubs, and they do have the ability to do this. I think that so. I, so I don't think that that parties should not have the ability to appoint candidates because I think that sometimes it's necessary. Uh, but uh, the way this was handled seems to be have been a, a, a significant misstep in Edmonton for for Mr. Kenny. Um, it, you have a you have a number of candidates um, who have been campaigning for almost a year, have sold tons of memberships, have put in their own time and resources. You know, had their friends' time and resources put in. You know, uh, blood, sweat, and tears campaigning on the door on the doors. Um, and that's what and it is at the nomination level. Yeah. You're asking people to give you what it is ten bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Sign up, and now you're going to go to those people and say. Well, the party decided we're not going to do it. After yeah. All. So, yeah. so at least from 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 my view, it looks like they were kind of strung along in terms of of the the nomination being delayed from the fall, in, delayed in December, delayed into the new year, and then all of a sudden they appoint a candidate. That's just kind of a not a not a very classy way to handle it. So, in terms of of ha- the way you're handling it, the way the way a party handles it, like they could definitely have done much better than this. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Ryan? Is it something we should stop doing, or is this again all part of the game? No, I mean it's. I think it's actually important. It is part of the game from like a pessimistic hack point of view, but (laughs) even stepping back and thinking about good governance, you want people in the political process who are qualified and have experience. One of the problems with open nominations is that the types of people who win them don't necessarily make the best elected folks. 
because it's a totally different thing. Right. Now, I say that as someone who's lost a nomination, but <laughs> I've also won a nomination, so 50-50. Yeah. But, you know, winning nominations is a really different animal. Yeah. And so much of politics, I've come to the conclusion politics is like 50% talent and hard work and 50% events. And um, many of the current caucus on the, in the whole house didn't even face nominations. Yeah. And yet, does that mean they're good or bad? No, not necessarily. So I, I actually think it's important. I think that, yeah, it also fills a role with the party to reward certain people sometimes. Like, it can be abused, for sure. Mm -hmm. But if, I'm trying to think of a high profile, if, if Dr. Turpin from the University of Alberta approached one of the parties and said, you know what, I, I would love to serve in government, um, would they really make him run in a nomination where he might lose to some 22-year-old political animal yeah. like i don't yeah. think i think there's a balance there so i wouldn't get rid of it i would use it carefully you know and i've been one of the mocking voices of the ndp for not having any contested nominations <laughs> so i don't want to sound like too much of a hypocrite like contested nominations are good also just tactically you have battle-tested politicians mm -hmm. if you win a nomination you know and people look at nominations in the general um sometimes they say well it's easy to win as the conservative in rural uh, Alberta. Okay, fair, but those nominations are tough. Like mm -hmm. you pay your pound of flesh at one side or the other, unless you're the NDP in 2015. But <laughs> you, yeah, but that was the perfect storm. It was, was the perfect the, storm. Yeah. But you pay your you pay your pound of flesh. You win a tough nomination. Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, I'm drawing a blank. The name of the rural MP who gets 84 percent, Kevin Sorensen. Sorensen. So people might From say, "Well, Crowfoot or yeah. whatever the I don't think it's called Crowfoot anymore, but whatever, whatever the Crowfoot riding used to be, basically like the ruralist of rural Alberta, like eighty four percent." Yeah, you could say, "Oh, that's easy. My my cat could get elected eighty four. Okay, sure, but try winning that nomination. Yeah, right. Like you pay one way or the other. So I do think nominations are good. I think it tests the candidates, but there are situations where it makes sense to hold some back for otherwise appointment. Now, but again, this one is just pretty rough yeah so just another question from sure. the mailbag relating to this that i want to bring up right now and i think we've sort of touched on it but matt schneider was asking us does kenny have anything to fear with the goodwill he's shed from his own supporters with the meadows appointment you talked about yeah. it affecting young people ryan yeah i think he does it, yeah. it certainly is a political calculation with cost and I, I don't i think if you injected him with the truth serum he would agree but you make the calculation that you're also attracting a prominent Edmonton business person with name rack. Mm -hmm. Len Rhodes, although he screwed up Mike Riley and the naming and Eskimos issue, yeah. he still has more name rack than probably the rest of the Edmonton candidates. Well, and, and, he, and he brings donors with him too, right? Probably. Like he, he's a well-connected business person in the, in, the, in the Edmonton community. And it's hard to... He's I can the, I can see the political temptation. I can and right? I can, he's the kind of guy that had he approached the NDP they would have appointed him as well. Probably, like, yeah. 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 Uh, I mean it'll be interesting to see within Edmonton Meadows whether I mean cuz the 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 risk one of the risks you do take when you do appoint a candidate who's from outside of the riding and doesn't have the type of connections that a local candidate would uh, is will will the local organ, UCP organization will the lo actual local volunteers who may have been volunteering on one of these nomination campaigns will they come out and support the new candidate on election when the election is called. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's something that, that's definitely um, something that will be interesting to watch in Edmonton Meadows specifically. Uh, I think that, I mean, I think that it will be a competitive riding going into the next election. Um, 
even with Len Rhodes, at, like an, as someone like Len Rhodes as a candidate. Um, right now, the NDP, actually today, the NDP are having a nomination contest in Edmonton Meadows. Oh, okay. So the current incumbent, uh, Denise Woolard, who was elected in 2015, is facing a challenge from two other candidates. Uh, Jasvir Deal, who was the 2015 federal NDP candidate in Edmonton Mill Woods, uh, and Chand Gul, who is um, the from what I was able to find, the president of the Alberta Pashtun Association and also a former member of the board of directors of Amarjeet Sohi's constituency association what? in Edmonton Mill Woods. Hold on, pause. What party is Amarjeet Sohi part of, Dave? The Liberal Party of Canada. <laughs> That's not the same as the Alberta NDP. No, no. So this is this is actually quite interesting. Um, from what I found, um, Chan Gould joined the NDP or, or became involved in the NDP during the their October convention. And I think she's, on, she's an NDP member and on one of their... I think on the diversity committee. Um, but it is very interesting that she was a member of Amarjeet Sohi's board of directors up until recently. Um, and Amarjeet Sohi being a fairly popular MLA, a very popular politician in Southeast Edmonton, uh, it'll be interesting to see what kind of, if she's able to win the nomination today, uh, what kind of organization she's able to bring perhaps some of Amarjeet Sohi's organization with her, with her to the uh, to the provincial uh, provincial election in Edmonton Meadows. Is it time for wild speculation? I mean, it's always time for wild speculation on this podcast. Yeah, my face is in the the logo. I yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when Miss, right in. <laughs> when Miss Notley becomes leader of the official opposition with a caucus of <laughs> fourteen. <laughs> Um, and she realizes it's way less fun than being premier and moves on. Mm. And Mr. Soheed is the unelected former MP for Edmonton Mill Woods. Do you think perhaps he would look at the provincial NDP as uh, the next vehicle for his ambition? You talk about Amarjeet Sohi? Mm-hmm. You know, I think I th- what I'm what I'm looking at for Amarjeet Sohi, depending on whether he gets elected, reelected or not in ne- this cup- upcoming fall federal election, is not the next provincial election but the 2021 mayoral election in Edmonton. Yeah. I think Amarjeet Sohi would be a very compelling candidate for mayor. Um, yeah. I mean, more, his track record as a... It's I not mean, as fun, though. It's not as fun to speculate about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to stir the well, pot. More, more realistic. I, 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 I don't know. I couldn't see him jumping to the... I, maybe. Yeah, I, no. I couldn't really see him jumping to the provincial NDP. I was going to say one thing about the Lynn Rhodes appointment, too, is we had a riding in St. Albert. It's now called... Mournville, Mournville, St. Albert, Mournville, St. Albert. Yep. That was kind of a Frankenstein riding. Huh. It really didn't have a legacy CA. Mm-hmm. It really was the combination of several CAs. The board took a while to get their action together because there wasn't really one board that felt like this was theirs. Mr. Rhodes, I understand. I don't know. Lives in St. Albert. Had we now, maybe it's because he didn't decide to do this till later, but it feels like there was the perfect riding for him to run in that Mournville riding. He probably lives in that part of St. Albert, too, because it's the kind of a little bit wealthier side of St. Albert. The 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 old rich guy part of St. Albert. (laughs) And, you know, there wouldn't have been a local candidate. There wouldn't have been a local board. Had we done this eight months ago, everybody would be all smiles. So, I mean, I guess that's a bit naive because you can't always say when this this decision became presented Mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. But there definitely was a way to do this that wouldn't have been quite so painful. So I guess that's off topic, but I want to get it in. That's okay. What other nomination news is there? I mean, this was the big one, but I know there's more. My favorite party, turns out, their leader... You mean the Rhino Party, right? <laughs> no, my other favorite party. <laughs> the, the Alberta out, Party. Turns out the leader is ineligible to run. Now, I have to say something off the top. <laughs> I actually find this absurd. 
I actually can't believe this is constitutional. Like, I'm not a lawyer. Like, you, you think the the, uh, the fact that he's Alberta, been disqualified is dumb? Yeah, it feels to me like running for office and being eligible to run for office is a pretty sacred right of citizenship, unless you are like a convicted criminal. <laughs> and even then, I might say they can run. They just hopefully will lose. But like, <laughs> I'm way more inclined to people being allowed to run. So I find it a little bit bonkers that. Um, some civil servants, or even legislation, I'm sure Dave's going to correct me, that the government I, I will correct you in a second. are able to restrict people's ability to run for election. I'm not saying I would support him, mm-hmm. but just like some of the perennial candidates we've talked about who run for everything um, can do it, it's up to them. So I, I found this way dispro- disproportionate to the... to And even listening to your discussion last week with Natalie and David, I agree, he should have done the paperwork. But saying that the voters don't get that choice feels disproportionate but then dave this week something happened and some of them got approved but mandel they postponed yeah so so first i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about the so just just do a little little explainer and and a little background into what we're talking about with the with the penalty so right now the elections act says that uh basically if you file your paperwork late you can be banned for five years or eight years from running as a candidate or operating or or taking a position as the chief financial chief financial officer for a campaign. Uh, that actually happened in 2012, while Rose lost a oh, Senate yeah. candidate in the middle of the election, Jeff Calloway. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. This and this, but this is nothing new. This is this has been on the books. This particular penalty has been on the books since 1983. And has it ever been tested in court? Uh, it. I'll, I'll get to that in a sec. Okay, sorry. And yeah. previous to the the because it was it was it was made th- or introduced to the Elections Act through an amendment to the Legislative Assembly Act in 1983. And previous to 1983, this and this is crazy. The Chief Elections Officer had the ability to ban someone indefinitely from running as a candidate, like for life, if they want, like basically. That sounds like some Banana Republic stuff. Yeah, that's like that's like that's, that's, like, that's, the, like, that's like 1980s Tory Alberta. You it's know? like, it's the, like the, the party that wins 79 out of 83 seats gets to make those types of rules. And the, who appointed the commissioner? The premier or cabinet? The chief elections officer? Yeah, sorry, I left. Uh, I think that's a there's a committee of the legislature that that handles that. At least they do now. I don't know what happened, what they did in the 1980s. So the difference, so th- so that that legislation has been in the books for quite some time. The difference we're seeing now and the the trouble that Mandel and six other Alberta party candidates ran into was that the NDP uh, three years ago extended the legislation to include nominations. So previous to this election nomination, or actually previous to to the the by-elections that happened last year, nominations were not included, not covered under the Elections Act. But because nominations are, because, because donations to nominations are now counted towards your annual total. There's a financial disclosure and a, like a financial accountability aspect to it now with the nominations, which didn't which didn't exist before. Nominations was brought under the uh, brought under this penalty. And this is what happens when I, government runs wild. Dave. I, I have to say that no one, actually one one person talked about this, but no one talked about the actual the, the risks of the actual penalty. But the only MLA to that I was able to find reading through the Hansard and reading reading through the transcript of the standing or select standing committee on ethics and accountability, which was a total gong show uh, that, that that was appointed after the 2015 election. Uh, the only reasonable adult in the room was Richard Starkey, who's the who's now a, actually still a progressive conservative MLA for uh, Vermilion Lloyd Minster's not running again in the next election. But 
the whole committee was basically like NDP and Wildrose MLAs bickering with each other. And then Richard Starkey standing up and like, or chiming in and making like a really insightful comment every now and then. And even though I may not have agreed with all his comments, I actually like, I thought it was actually quite insightful. Right. Um, and he raised, he raised concerns about the impact that including nominations would have under this legislation might have, but no one, no one raised the issue of, of the five-year penalty or the eight-year penalty as far as I could see anywhere during the committee debate or the legislative debate. There was no amendments to remove this. Because they probably couldn't fathom not filling out the same paperwork that they've had to fill out all along. Well, and it should be noted that the only party that seems to have had a problem with this in this nomination, in this election cycle, is the Alberta party. Um, aside from a few um, uh, UCP candidates who were defeated in nominations who aren't candidates. So there are a few of them who have been added to the list. They just, well, they just they pissed off well. and, and yeah. didn't care because they lost, I, I assume. Um, There's something but, special about Alberta politics where you have a leader of the opposition crossing the floor and now a, a leader of a minor party not being able to run. Like, <laughs> it's a, you know, we, we sometimes we risk giving up our, our throne of being the most colorful politics in the country, but every <laughs> I, once in a while we take it back. I, I don't think we're ready to give that up. Doug Ford is giving us a run for our money, but uh, trying, but, but not yet. Well, he's we'll, we'll, always there too. Yeah, well, we'll see another three years of Doug Ford in Ontario, and we might have to give up the the championship belt. His so, his stuff is predictably goofy. Ours isn't, right? Right. Like yes. that's what's so we yes. come out of left field. Exactly. So so going going back to the Alberta Party and the candidates who've been banned. One candidate this week, uh, the Court of Queen's Bench issued a waiver to allow him to run, basically lifting the ban, and that's Mo Rahal, who's running in Edmonton Castle Downs. Only one. Only one. Okay. So there are five other candidates, and there was one other person who was added to that list, Tim Meach from Livingstone McLeod. What changed for this one candidate? I don't know specifically what. I don't. I don't know specifically. I didn't hear. You were in court all I didn't week. Hear the arguments. No, I wasn't. <laughs> and it wasn't actually. It was, it was like it was chambers, so it's different. It's oh. not like it's like not like a court case it's like being called to the principal's office ba- basically so steve mandel's lawyers went on friday lawyers, plural yeah lawyers on friday uh went on the on friday the 22nd to to uh, to basically state their case and instead of issuing a waiver right there and then the judge said that they would basically take a week and consider it which i don't know what that means i don't know why the judge would would i don't think it's good for mandel it doesn't sound like it would be it's a very yeah. good a promising thing i, I mean my interpretation of that was the judge knows that the Mandel campaign made the error and that by all objectives sort of just take the emotions out. He doesn't have a case. But I think the judge also realizes the bigger picture that this is like restricting a voter's choice over an administrative matter. So that's my interpretation. So that's what he wants to think of. Hard yeah. And I, and I think that, um, you know, I, I'm a little disappointed the NDP didn't tackle this during over the past four years and, and maybe whoever forms the next government might actually tackle it if they reopen the election. Premier Steven, <laughs> Premier Steven Mandel will amend the Elections Act. Uh, no, I mean, who, whoever whoever forms government after this next, this next election should probably take a look at the at the you know maybe not the part about including nominations under the act, under under the trans the transparency of the act but maybe the penalties looking at the five or eight year penalty and, yeah. and thinking maybe this is a little heavy handed um, maybe a financial penalty would would be more appropriate I, I'm not super comfortable with nominations being included in the um, from a donor a donations point of view. Mm-hmm. I guess there's pros and cons. And, you know, the UCP put out their Democratic reform package this week, and I actually don't know if they committed to taking nominations back out or not. I don't think it was included. But, I mean, I get why they've included it. I see some pros. But nominations, as you said earlier, Dave, like parties are a private organization. And the the method to have voter oversight or sign-off is the election. 
Like if if we want to start the Rhino Party and nominate all of our friends, you mean join join the Rhino Party? Yeah, because it already exists. <laughs> oh right, sorry. <laughs> I think that's our God given right as citizens. Like I don't think it's up to Elections Alberta to decide who gets to be on the ballot. Yeah. Generally, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. It, it's the overlapping Venn diagram of where they should be active or or overseers. I, I agree with you, Ryan. It doesn't feel right. It, it's just so heavy handed. Again, this this you know, and I think maybe something that people are bumping against is it. This is happening while we've got an NDP government in power, and it feels like nanny state kind of stuff. Exactly. I, I hate to make Ryan's point for him, but <laughs> you let, this is government run wild. No, I mean. <laughs> It was also interesting to see which parties spoke up about it and which ones didn't. I didn't see the NDP say anything either way. Did you guys? They seem to be pretty quiet about it. Yeah, I think um, I think uh, the Democratic Reform Minister uh, Christina Gray spoke up and basically said, "This is the this is the rule of law." It's her legislation. It's, yeah, yeah. yeah I, she which, was which, she was basically channeling uh, Walter from The Big Lebowski. Smokey, this is not nom. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey. Yeah, and I, I didn't think I didn't think it was totally appropriate <laughs> opinion, for the minister man? to be uh, to be a commenting on this at all. Oh, like the labor minister going on the picket lines in a, in a general strike. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. That what's was what's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it also it's a, shows it's a labor you, government. Jeez. I also think it shows you how the parties perceive the Alberta Party. The UCP wants the Alberta Party on the ballot. The NDP does not, which lines up nicely with my theory mm. that the Alberta Party is part of the coalition of people who hate Jason Kenney. And so Rachel Notley sees it as one last choice for that vote. Whereas the UCP, and I'm not suggesting it was pure political gamesmanship because I actually think there's a principled issue here too, but the UCP sees the Alberta Party as also competing with Rachel Notley for mm -hmm. those votes. We're going to get letters. Pipelines, pipelines, pipelines. Pipelines are back on the political menu this week, right on schedule. The National Energy Board released its report concluding that the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project from Edmonton to Burnaby is in the public interest and should proceed. The report states that the... Again, which they've said how many times? Which, which is like totally no surprise because, yeah, they've, they released a similar report last year or the year before. So this was not really surprising. Uh, the report states that the NEB will impose 156 conditions on the project, which always sounds comically large. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, we, 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 we're, we're going to impose, you know, 3,751 conditions on this. It just seems like a, a, big, a big number, but, you know, this stuff is important. Um, Imagine if you had a roommate ad agreement like that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, I wonder what those 156 conditions would be. Um, so oh, and you didn't mention that this is our pipeline now. By the way, yes, it's the the federal government, the, the Canadian people's, people's, yes, people's the, pipeline, the people's yeah. pipeline uh, owned by the government of Canada. Uh, the report also warns that the project could have quote significantly adverse impacts on the southern resident killer whales in in British Colum or of British Columbia due to the increased shipping traffic. Now, but the shipping traffic, the marine traffic, um, uh, environmental assessment was one of the reasons why yeah. the pipeline was delayed. The court of uh, federal court of appeal last year right. they uh, hadn't looked at that. Point. Yeah, they ruled that the the NEB needed to go back and look at this. So this this is that's what this report but is. Could about. it doesn't mean well, and many of the conditions probably are focused on that exact issue. Right? Yeah, yeah, I haven't taken a look at, at all of the 156 conditions, but I assume that there are some in there that like, that are meant to address this. Any infrastructure project by its very nature includes risk. That's the whole point of the assessment. So we were never going to get something that said there's no risk. If you want no risk in life, I don't know what you can do. You dig a hole, you climb into it, 
you bury yourself in the hole. Well, you you buy rail cars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so we haven't we didn't see this week we didn't see Rachel Notley unfurling the mission accomplished banner on, <laughs> on the on the deck of Alberta's aircraft carrier on Slave Lake this week. Um uh, because you heard about uh, that in the UCP platform, we're going to build one of those. <laughs> an aircraft carrier. Yeah. On, well, you've heard about my idea about building a, a canal from Slave Lake to uh, to the Pacific Coast. A canal. A deep. Yeah, basically making like a shipping canal, like making yep, Slave Lake work. as Alberta's deep water port. Would that, that be work. the longest canal on the planet? It would probably probably also be the highest because it has to go over the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> oh, this well, is you go uh, them. this is yeah. a stupid idea, Dave. Yeah, yeah. It's I think I wrote it as an April Fool's joke. I think joke we could on my ref- blog a few years ago. I think we could reform the justice system and just have convicted criminals passing buckets of oil. <laughs> Someone mentioned the, the bucket uh, brigade. The bucket brigade. I think Andrew Leach mentioned yeah. the bucket brigade on on, uh, on, uh, on Twitter. We could reform their moral compass. It could uh, provide some environmental benefit because. It'd be hard to spill more than a bucket at a time. <laughs> it's not a bad idea, Ryan. It is a bad idea. I know, it's I a know. horrible it's a idea. idea. It's very like Dickensian. <laughs> uh, so the the reason why this the the you know uh, Premier Notley didn't unveil the mission accomplished banner this week is because there is a ninety day period for the cabinet to consider approval. Federal cabinet. Federal cabinet to consider approval and first cons- consultations with First Nations communities are still underway, from what so, I understand. So Minister Soheet, if you're listening. <laughs> This is the time to convince your co- your cabinet colleagues to approve this. But what you just said kind of interests me because why did they come out with this, whatever this was, if they haven't, if if First Nation consultation was part of the issue? Well, they were, they were, they were the two set the two separate issues, right? So the the federal court of appeals said that the NEB had to go back mm-hmm. and further consider or do some more work on the marine ship on the marine the ass- marine shipping some environmental assessment, and then they said the federal government has to go back and. Com- complete the or basically redo the third phase of of consultation with first nations is there a deadline the for phase. that i don't believe there was actually a deadline like a firm deadline like the neb had set for february 22nd um but i will look in i will look into it um, but it's my understanding that those consultations are still underway that a considerable number of the consultations have been completed but it's still underway like because we're talking about a, it's quite a big process because there's a lot of first nations communities how many territories does it or treaties sorry does it cross like well you know i mean alberta it would be treaty six and then treaty eight is the are the the treaties in alberta that that the pipeline would go through and then in british columbia it's unceded land so there are no territories except for up in the up in, up in northern british columbia so i'm not sure yeah. who's being consulted in terms of the first nations communities but uh, i mean alberta and bc are big provinces it's big territory so one of one of our listeners is asking uh and i'm not going to wait for the mailbag for this one either does is this NEB Trans Mountain reapproval enough to save the NDP? No, the, I don't like, think this materially. Ch- the poll numbers don't change here because the no. shovels in the ground won't happen until years from now, probably at least after the provincial. Yeah, election. yeah, I, sure. I, I, I don't think that this really changes much in the terms of the provincial election. And then the other question, uh, I think this is from Phil Zinkin. He wants to know. What will happen to this NEB approval if a new UCP government cancels Alberta's carbon tax? This isn't that's an interesting question because is there approval contingent upon these kinds of regulations? Well, not well, I don't think explicitly. The federal cabinet, when Trudeau initially announced back last year that the federal government had approved the pipeline before the federal court of appeal ruled on these two, two, two items, uh, he no, he said specifically that Alberta's climate leadership plan basically was the thing that convinced them to make to approve this pipeline it made it happen so it will be very interesting to see whether 
whether you know when Mr. If Mr. Kenny forms government and and the, I mean the UCP have already said they're gonna their first act is gonna be the you know trash the carbon tax act. They're um, already actually um, part of the court case against it. Yeah, so so they're going to the UCP has said they're going to repeal the carbon tax. It'll be interesting to see whether that will impact the the uh, the federal cabinet's uh, willingness to reapprove this project. Though I I don't think so because. The federal government actually owns the pipeline now. Oh yeah. So they have like a real incentive, like both like yeah. in terms of like political capital and like real financial capital. I mean, they own four point five billion dollars worth of blueprints that they can't use until they approve this. Well, and I think too, there's a distinction between a regulatory requirement and a political issue. Right. So it, it would depend entirely upon who's making the decisions at that table. When Justin and Rachel were friends, <laughs> um, he was happy to say that because that was sort of the agreement. Yeah. I wonder. It will be interesting to see in the next 90 days is is as sort of dissatisfied as he might be with her pushback lately. Um, I think he also realizes that the alternative to Rachel Notley is far less positive for him. So I still think he'll try to help her pull this out. The unless he thinks the provincial liberal party is going to win. But you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that he if he's getting some some bad advice, if he thinks the provincial liberal party is well, going to form the next government in Alberta. Let's be clear. It does appear that he's been getting some bad advice. So, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> what he knows about the Alberta Liberals, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yep. Switching to federal politics for a few moments, um, I think we need to touch on one of the more remarkable stories that's come out of the Trudeau years so far, which is the whole SNC-Lavalin, Trudeau, JWR, Clerk of the Privy Council. We're going to have to explain what some of these things are. Um, saga. So just to set the bar a little bit, um, the Clerk of the... I'll start with the Clerk of the Privy Council. So uh, the Clerk of the Privy Council is the most senior public servant or bureaucrat in the country. He is effectively the Prime Minister's Deputy Minister. So he's the bureaucratic equivalent. PCO, the Privy Council Office, is kind of the center, the center of the federal government. Um, it is the hub of the entire network. It's the one that all the other departments report to. So basically from a, if you want to think of an analogy, they are the prime minister's office, but on the bureaucratic side. And so the clerk is a very, very powerful person, very important role. And they typically are about as colorful as a can of white paint. You know, they, (laughs) they do not say anything. They rarely do media at all. So, so provincially this to be the equivalent of the, like the deputy minister of executive council. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Um, there's a there's definitely a culture in Ottawa of the clerk being very hesitant to speak, and particularly on things that are so white. They're sorry, so searingly partisan and 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 I guess hot at the moment. And so you've seen the situation where the and I think you guys touched on this last weekend, where the former Attorney General and Justice Minister has resigned from cabinet. And now you've had the principal secretary, which is one of the prime minister's chief advisors, quit over this issue. So for the clerk to get involved in this was actually pretty stunning. And as many people pointed out, he actually ended up echoing or parroting a lot of the political talking points that the Liberal Party is putting out right now, which, again, I actually don't think did himself any favors or the government, because now you've got sort of the, the chatter in class, the ad issues panel types, saying how inappropriate this was. Now, I think probably... It's because he knew. Well, he even said in his comments that he was the one putting pressure on the former minister. So he probably knew it was going to come out anyway. She still, as of this recording, has not spoken to the committee. Um, and it'll be very interesting. The political assessment that some of us made was when Jerry Butts quit, that was the sacrificial offering to appease 
basically her frustration with the prime minister's office. Jerry Butts and P- Justin Trudeau have been friends since college. They are in each other's wedding parties. Like that was a very painful loss for the prime minister. You could almost say it was surgically perci- precise to cause pain. I'm sure that when this blew up and they realized that the former minister had the ability to really hurt the whole government and they asked her what we can do to make this better. I'm just saying Jerry Butts quitting didn't happen on its own. So it's very interesting that we're still in a position where she still hasn't spoken. And it seemed like she was going to throw a wet blanket on to the whole issue once Jerry Butts quit. But now she's still saying how she wants to speak her truth and she hasn't been able to speak yet. So stay tuned. Pop the popcorn and let's see. But, you know, the comments we made last week when I was away about how this is the same old liberal party doing what they do. It, it really is hard to imagine how they get themselves into these situations where on behalf of a private corporation, which is a very important corporation to the Canadian economy and Quebec economy, but they're going to end up paying a huge political price over this. Yeah, it definitely feels that way. And and the issue I'm finding for like the average Canadian is, and I'm, I count myself among those people, it seems too complicated to understand. Like yeah. the details are mm-hmm. so crazy, but it's easy to just sort of apply a label to the issue and say, you know, same old liberals doing what exactly. they always do. Exactly. Yeah. I think, I think there's, we've got, we've reached the point where, I mean, this is always kind of a confusing scandal because it was more about what we didn't know than what we knew. Um, so I think for, I get the impression that for a lot of Canadians that this, this is quite confusing. And I, I mean, I include myself as well. Um, I spend a lot of time paying attention to Alberta politics. I do pay attention to what's going on in Ottawa, but once it reached like the committee level, I found like, right. i I don't know who these characters are, but for but, the but for for the average person, I think it's just you know oh well that's just political corruption or they they heard one third of the story and it's oh well Justin Trudeau took a bribe or something like that or you know, or you know, the feminist prime minister focused on reconciliation well, that's, that's the other thing is being a jerk to the first female attorney general of indigenous descent. You have three men basically pushing her and bullying her around and her saying as opposed to probably most attorneys general who would just go along, she said, no, I'm not going to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of really bad mojo here for the liberal brand. Yeah, and yeah. With, with not a lot of um, detail on what's happening with the left-wing press in Canada, so-called, on, on an episode of Canada Land Shortcuts last week, Jesse Brown spoke with a, a woman who's a journalist based in Quebec, and they, they said exactly that thing. You know, he's going after a woman who's indigenous, and it is a shitty look. For Not liberals. just about corruption in Quebec and Lavalin. She's also now saying the thing that she was actually upset about was the reconciliation agenda yeah. and how slow it's gone. You know, he campaigning, he made all these promises. Oh, we're going to reconcile. I will fix it. You know, this issue that's been sort of existential for decades. Justin Trudeau is the solution. Well, he gets there and his own indigenous mm-hmm. minister of justice, attorney general. Now she's saying she was dissatisfied with the pace. And what did they do? They moved, they, they demoted her yeah. and pushed her around on a corruption issue. This is bad. Yeah, it does definitely does not look good for the, it's, it's not a good look for the, for the Trudeau liberals at all. And I have to say too, sitting here in Edmonton Center, that Randy Boissonneau did really not do himself a lot of credibility there. They were desperately looking for some loyal MP who wanted to be in cabinet someday and was willing to be the one to make ridiculous statements. And Randy was the one to do it. Like, 
obviously I'm an opponent, a partisan opponent of Randy Boston. But even as people a little bit more favorable or supportive of him, did that make you proud? Like to see him <laughs> being that guy? You, you know, I, I, I've known Randy for, for a while. We both come from the same small town. We both grew up in Warrenville, north of Edmonton. Uh, and I, I like Randy. Um, and I think he's generally been a fairly good member of parliament. But I, I didn't think that was a really good look uh, over the past couple of weeks. The one week talking about how, you know, no, we won't, we won't bring the former attorney general to the committee to testify at the committee or to speak to the hearing. And then, and then, then the next week, basically doing a 150 and or just 180, pardon me. And clearly saying whatever they wanted him to say. There wasn't a he's, really he's playing. He, you know, he, he was he was doing what many politicians do when they're put in that role is playing the you know right. playing the role of the loyal foot soldier. It's it's your you're, you're playing defense at that at that point. And, and, and sometimes you got to change your message, and it looks really awkward. And and okay. you know, political pundits like us are out here to to point out the, right. these moments. Well, remember Paul Calandra? Everyone made fun of him. He was the PM's. Oh, yeah. Carl he was second, the worst. He was just like, <laughs> and he would say anything <laughs> in QP. But I was going to say, what was the answer to his question? Israel, or you know, we what oh, was, was his answer? They were asking about like childcare, and his answer was like, "We support the government of Israel." But what I remember now, <laughs> five years later, is he was that guy. Yes, and Randy now just had an episode of being that guy. But I was going to say, Andrew McDougall, former um, uh, director of communications to Prime Minister Harper, writes yeah. to McLean's, and he had a really good article about this. And I don't say that from a partisan perspective, but he. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes. He walked you through what's going on in turn, internally to the PMO during a scandal like this. Did you guys read it? it no, was, but I've read some of, from some of his other stuff. He's, he's quite insightful. It was excellent. He was like, stage one, here's what we would do. And then he showed how they were doing it. And then he's like, stage two, it's getting worse. Here's what they do. And he just basically showed how they've totally lost control of this story, how everything they're doing makes it worse. Um, it was really insightful. And like I don't just say that from a partisan point of view because he's – he even says that the Harper PMO was in some of these themselves. Yeah. But he walks you through the sort of internal workings. And Paul Wells also had a aw- uh, really, yes. really insightful piece about um, the relationship with Jerry Buds. So. so we've come to the conclusion that the, the Liberal Party of Canada are a bunch of wieners. Is that what we're saying here? <laughs> I'm not going to go that far. That's unparliamentary <laughs> that's, language. That's very unparliamentary language, Mr. <laughs> Hassman. The honorable member from... from uh, St. Albert now, I guess. St. Albert, yeah. <laughs> I still think of myself as an Edmonton guy. I haven't fully drank the Kool-Aid yet, but... Just a couple more years there and you'll be all... It's true. St. Albert like, oh. St. Albert... You know, when you talk to people... Men, men your age in St. Albert wear <laughs> socks and sandals? Oh, socks no, and Birkenstocks. <laughs> That's when we'll know. <laughs> hey, I have Spider-Man socks on right <laughs> Oh, there you go. You're still uh, you're still Edmonton Strathcona. <laughs> you know, when you talk to At people... Heart. Yeah. When you talk to people born in St. Albert and raised, they think of Edmonton as like that movie with Kurt Russell when all of New York City is one big prison. Escape, Escape from, from New York. York. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they think Edmonton is. It's just this like burning fire barrel. Anyway. Hey, you know what? I've lived here my whole life and it definitely feels that way sometimes. <laughs> Thanks, Don Iveson. <laughs> the Dave Berta podcast is made possible in part by the Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. At the ECF, you can start an endowment fund for yourself or with a group, and once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Another initiative at ECF is Vital Signs, which is an annual checkup conducted by Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how a community is doing. And this year's focus is on five topics, women, sexual orientation and gender identity in Edmonton, visible minority women, and senior women. 
You can find out more about all the programs that the Edmonton Community Foundation runs, and you can also find information on their podcast, the Well Endowed Podcast, which, by the way, is an award winner. Visit ecfoundation.org to find out more. That's ecfoundation.org. The Dave Berta Podcast is also powered by the Alberta Podcast Network, itself powered by ATB Financial. And to tell us more about one of these shows on the Alberta Podcast Network are the guys from Pop Cycle. Hey, it's Eric from Pop Cycle, the Pop Culture Connections podcast. On our show, we discuss just how incestuous pop culture really is, but in a really fun way. We take a chunk of culture, be it a movie, an actor, a song, a musician, or a book, and then by going as far away as possible by way of six degrees of separation, we end up right back where we started. It's a lot of fun, so if you're so inclined, take a listen. We're also part of the Alberta Podcast Network, so you can find us via albertapodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know if you guys know this, but there's an election coming up, a provincial election, and between deciding whether that or not... Smell? That's that smell, yeah. The smell of campaigning in the morning. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> the smell of sadness and desperation. <laughs> that's that's just B- body both odor. happiness and broken dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Gold pizza and sadness. <laughs> Sorry, uh, that's quite all right. But uh, we are in the throes of our of the pre-election season because uh, an official campaign hasn't been declared. Except Cheryl Oates today. <laughs> Except for the premier's uh, chief of staff, or sorry, Press director, director of director communications. Of communications yeah. That's right. Um, so a lot has taken place. We've had uh, the distribution of pork taking place on the NDP side and some uh, campaign promises being released by Jason Kenney and the UCP on the, shall we say, right side of the aisle. And what do you guys think? What are you hearing and seeing? Maybe let's talk about some of those announcements, starting with uh, what has the premier been throwing around these days, Dave? Yeah. So we've had some big announcements, big announcements from Rachel Notley on the energy file uh she made an announcement this week up in grand prairie about uh the construction of a refinery and this has to do had to do with the big um the big announcement right before christmas about the, the government where the provincial government was uh looking at looking for taking expressions of interest uh for the construction of new refineries uh notley made a big announcement about which was which was kind of an announcement that she'd already made last year and that the government had already done in a previous occasion uh but for for different in, in terms of a different direction in terms of basically renting or purchasing rail cars for the transportation of oil to the pacific coast and i think previous i think in the previous year in 2017 i think it was that the government announced they were doing the same thing but like shipping it down south to like the gulf coast um so that wasn't too much of a surprise i mean right now notlin is, is in a position where the pipeline is likely not to be the Trans Mountain pipeline, as we talked about earlier in the pod, is not likely to be officially approved by the federal cabinet before the provincial election is held. So she has to be seen as doing something on the energy file and be seen as as, as active on the energy energy file. So that's really what this was about, and that's I think we talked about this uh, in a previous podcast about when the government originally announced the expressions for interest for the construction of a new refinery. Um, you're seeing uh, Rachel Notley talk a lot about and kind of evoke the memory of Peter Lougheed and the role that the government of Alberta back in the 1970s and 1980s played in investing in oil sands, investing in, in, in Alberta's, in Alberta's energy sector to basically make, bring it to the point where we are now. Um, so it's not too surprising to see that she's, she's been, uh, been focusing on that file. The other, 
so so there's the the energy file thing which 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 is interesting and and not surprising that she's focusing on it as as the premier but i'm not sure it's actually really moving the dial i think it's it's a problematic issue for the ndp and something that they've poured a lot of energy into over the past 4 years i mean basically adopting the you know the 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 pipeline issue trying to adopt the pipeline issue as their own uh, i don't really think that it's their strongest issue going into the election i don't think albertans really perceive the NDP as being strong on the economy and strong on pipelines, even though Rachel Notley herself has really put herself out there politically and, you know, tried to position herself as a champion for pipelines and really at many times over the past three years has been probably this, you know, totally, you know, in a weird way, when you consider where the NDP were five years ago, uh, she's at some point over the, or some points over the past four years, been Canada's strongest advocate and most vocal advocate for pipeline construction in this country. Um, but in, in terms of an election issue, I don't know if it's really that issue is really moving the dial, but no, I think she needs to be seen as doing something on that file. It's always been a shield issue for them, not a sword. Yeah, yeah. Right? And maybe we'll talk about that concept in a future episode, but some parties will never get ahead talking about some issues. And for her, as we've said on the show several times, she can never out-conservative the conservative party. Like, the NDP's perceived strengths have nothing to do with being pro-development and pro-pipeline. That's just not who they are or who their base or their caucus is. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and we've been talking about perceived strengths. Um, I mean, you go back and you look back uh, four years ago to the provincial election in 2015, and what were the big issues going in in that campaign? I mean, two of the big issues in that campaign were healthcare and education. Yeah. And those definitely played to the NDP's strengths. Going into this election in 2019, uh, you know, healthcare is always on the radar. It's always one of the top big issues, but it certainly doesn't seem to be that it's the biggest issue in the campaign. Pipelines and the economy and jobs seem to be the dominant issue. I want to um, talk about healthcare. Well, yeah, and that this is what this is. Uh, yeah, I want to talk about healthcare as well because we've seen the NDP over the past month try to raise healthcare as an issue, yeah. um, and we've seen the response from the UCP on that. So yeah. it was about probably about a month ago we saw the NDP really trying to raise healthcare as an election issue. Try to bring it up in terms of its prominence. We saw the UCP. Scare Albertans about well, no. No, no, but but initially we saw we saw the NDP try to raise the issue, then we saw the UCP respond, uh, when in a series of memes put out from their caucus talking about you know the the, the UCP meme machine, uh, basically trying to undermine undermine the NDP on the issue because the UCP realizes that healthcare, if the NDP are able to make healthcare a defining issue okay. in the election campaign. Uh, it's not necessarily good for the UCP, but the NDP need to convince Albertans for for healthcare to be an issue in the election campaign. The NDP need to convince Albertans that the UCP electing UCP government would be negative for the healthcare system. And right now, I'm not totally sure Albertans are th- are at that point yet. Uh, well, it's but very much same old talking points. Like I feel like we could flesh out the two sides' perspectives on this issue mm-hmm. for the last five elections and the next five elections. Yeah. So what I found interesting is the, I think this is a shield issue for the conservatives. Mm-hmm. Like we're never going to win because people th- trust us more on the healthcare yep. system. Yep. But I, I found it interesting that this week, the UCP, or maybe last week, the UCP went out of its way to put out a really detailed, or fairly detailed, written promise, and even a few of the things that they're uh, criticized on. So I made some notes here, Dave. You're talking about the the chloroplast sign that uh, the g- oversized well, giant chloroplast that, sign that Jason there, Kenney signed. Yeah, but there was a test. That's like like the grassroots issue. guarantee, right? Well, that's and that's the, the risk of doing it is that you, people remember other times when it was done. But you know, we they also distributed some some written um, fleshed out policy and also some promises. And so, of course, I have them here in front of me. Um, you know, they're saying explicitly they will not cut healthcare spending overall. 
They will maintain or increase public spending on health care. They will, though, target wait times. And this is one thing that if I was at the table last week when David was here, I would have jumped in on that. Actually, thanks to my friendly U- UCP colleagues who sent me the numbers, even since Notley took over, wait times as a measurement of performance, which I, I realize is not a perfect measurement of performance of a healthcare system, but it's, it is an important one. In many ways, wait times have, have gone the wrong way. Open heart surgery wait times have increased by 50%. Cataract surgery wait times by 30%. Hip replacement, 30%. Knee replacement has gone up by 23%. And then the following things have gotten worse. Longer emergency wait room times, worse outcomes on emergency rooms, declining outcomes for youth mental health, more wait times for beds. So the idea that David and you guys said last week that Sarah Hoffman has managed the file really well might be true from an organizational reorg perspective. She hasn't gone back to three regional boards or whatever. Like we had years and years of that type of chaos. And I'm actually also not even saying it's totally her fault, the things I just said. But we now are spending, as a province, um, $22 billion a year is spent, which is about 25% of the provincial budget. We spend per capita 38% more than BC. We have the highest paid nurses and doctors. No offense to the... We, we, we have the highest paid everything in Alberta. Right. So yet we're not seeing the best outcomes. So it's somewhat irrational, putting my partisan hat on, somewhat irrational to say that the system is fine and we should leave it alone. Where the UCP is taking its positioning, and this again is just sort of boilerplate, mm-hmm. is within the boundaries of the Health Act, we have to look at some innovation on delivery. Now, on the issue of management, because we often, and you guys talked about it last week, the conservative side usually points to HS as this boogeyman full of like managers managing mm-hmm. managers. Mm-hmm. I think the answer is actually somewhere in between. There are, yeah, I have the number here, 3.5% of its total staff is in management, which is about 4,000 positions. Which is less than the national, national average by about 1%. But the point of moving to one health board was supposed to be to eliminate some of the overhead. But so the, the, the point of moving to a, to a provincial health board was was to uh, to get rid of the political nuisance in the Calgary Health Authority <laughs> that, that was that was well, that, that was dogging Ed Stilmack. That was the that was like the real reason. But behind efficiencies it. of scale too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that that was kind of the argument that was used. But it was a real it was a political decision. The only just to finish the last concern I have. So I read the Keith Guerin article that you recommended to me, and he's got a point. Mm-hmm. But calling out Jason Kenney for being slightly wrong about the percentage of administrators when what Kenny's actually talking about is how wait times are getting worse is missing the mark. So Kenny may be a little bit wrong over here, but the key, if you're looking for a hip replacement, open heart surgery, an emergency room wait time, all the important stuff is going the wrong way too. So we need to do something like doing nothing is not a plan. And the systems inertia right now is getting worse. So I want to know what the NDP proposes what the NDP is going to do is talk about scary things. Today, one of their candidates in Lethbridge tweeted that people are going to have to mortgage their house to pay for surgery if Jason Kenney becomes premier. Like, it's just so discrediting. Um, the rhetoric on that side, probably on both sides at times. But I want to know, what is the NDP actually proposing? And what if if they have such good ideas now, what have they been doing for the last four years? Well, I, I, I'm also interested to hear what the NDP are going to propose for healthcare going into the next election. Uh, because I don't think they've actually... I mean, they've made made announcements about investments, about the about the construction of a new hospital in Southwest West Edmonton, the ongoing construction of the Calgary Cancer Center, investments in the, the new ho- or in, in the hospital in Red Deer. Um, 
I mean, but I mean, I'm, I am interested to see what what they're going to include in their election campaign platform on on the healthcare issue. I do think that healthcare has been one of the one of the the NDP's strong issues um, going or over over the past four years, kind of reiterating what what we were talking about last week. Uh, and I do think Sarah Hoffman can be credited credited for that. I mean, for decades we were kind of lurching from crisis to crisis in healthcare, massive reorganization, firing of boards. But you're talking uh, about the political side. Yeah, and and and, and sin- I agree and, with you on and, the political yeah, side. Yeah, no, but 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 stability on the political side also also leads to stability within the system, and I think we've seen that over the past four years. But we're seeing diminishing effects. That said, I mean, there's no doubt that there are there are systematic issues, um, and I mean, I know that there are that that you know, I mean, EHS is a huge bureaucracy, and there are people who are who are working on these files, and I don't have obviously don't have the the, the specifics on them, um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean there there are issues, and there's always room for improvement. No one's saying the system is perfect. Uh, the system is much better than than what a lot of people have everywhere else. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't don't, can't have room to improve. What what I found interesting with Mr. Kenny's proposal, and now I didn't really find anything in the UCP proposal to be new or surprising. It's basically what conser- a lot of conservatives have been talking about for a, a long time. It's it seemed almost word for word to what Daniel Smith actually proposed during the 2012 provincial election for as the Wild Rose healthcare policy in terms of introducing pr- more private surgeries, which has which I should note has been tried. Uh, in Calgary, there was a company that was running doing I think it was hip and hip and knee replacements. Cataracts, I thought. Yeah, or cataracts. Yeah, out of out of the old um, Salvation Army Grace Hospital in Calgary, um, which I think is like the Calgary. I can't remember what it's called, the Central Health Center or whatever they call it now. Um, but uh, they were doing that. They went bankrupt. <laughs> the, the government basically had to bail them out in 2010. So it's not like a new idea. It's there was there it's was not something that's actually really been. It's not something that hasn't actually been tried within the public system already. Which was the clinic that the NDP, or which was the procedure that the NDP terminated? That oh, I'm trying to remember. I think it might have been cataracts. If you're talking about knees and hips, one of the procedures. Well, this, the, this is back in 2010. Is the, yeah, the one that I mentioned. There was one that was actually going well, um, and the NDP. Shut it down once they form government. I wish I had the details on, so we might not be. Able I don't. To I don't know what you. T- I don't know what you're talking about. I. I want to get to the other part too because <laughs> I was going to ask you. Okay. So a lot of this is what we always propose to do. Tell me which parts you actually are alarmed at or opposed to. Because when I read the um, proposal, they're saying top line they're going to continue funding and it's going to be publicly accessible, publicly funded. Second line is they're going to look for innovation. So I don't know what. Help me understand what the concerns are. Well, I mean, even then, it, it's it's vague in terms of what what exactly that means. What I what I what my concern is is when it comes to uh, contracting out surgeries, contracting out those types of those types of procedures, is that it's essentially the government funding private companies to do this kind of thing. It's introducing more more of a private element in, into the public system. But why is that wrong? Like we do that with lots of things. Linens are done by private companies. Well, n- not as much like, anymore. Does that the, the, gov- the NDP are? <laughs> does the government? So I just spent some time in the states. Yeah. Obviously, that's a bit different. But NASA, in the early 2000s... They're the people who send people into space. No, but they stopped sending people into oh, space. Oh, the Russians send NASA they, people into space Because they now, realized, right? okay, we've done that. Like, for the basic commuting up and down... Now, there's pros and cons. Yeah. But for the basic supply missions for the space station and for getting astronauts up and down... Sorry, private companies don't do people yet, but they're about to. So, for supply missions, 
NASA has now gone to the private sector because they've said, look, we know how to do this. We're going to focus on the next thing, getting people to Mars. You guys, whether it's Bezos' company or Musk's company or other companies, you guys can do this stuff now. We've got it. Here's your parameters. Here's your contract. Like, I don't see why the government doing something is fundamentally better. This was from the the latest episode of Houston. We have a podcast, right? Oh, I haven't actually listened. Yeah, they talked about this exact same thing in terms of NASA. this is what the U.S. No, I know (laughs) this is a risky thing to bring up. The U.S. military as an organization, has been outsourcing most things forever. Boeing and um, Lockheed Martin build fighter jets. The U.S. government doesn't build fighter jets. So, my, And I, <laughs> I realize that's probably now throwing the argument a little bit off. But my point is, why does government have to do it? Like, if why is privatized delivery fundamentally wrong? I think in terms of what concerns me is once you start introducing the profit the profit motive within the healthcare system in terms of these types of procedures and i understand like there's a, there's there are private elements within the healthcare system when it comes to dental and optometry some of that stuff used to be optometry used to be covered in, in the into the in the under the public system until ralph klein became premier uh dentistry was i think was as part of the you know the original goal that 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 tommy douglas had for 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 um, socialized healthcare was like the next phase of it but it never actually got got included um so, so now we just touched on like a fundamental political science or political philosophy issue. Because I, I'm not a pro-capitalist with no regulation guy, and you're not a full-on socialist, but I think we both could appreciate some of the arguments from each side of this fundamental divide. I think competition and the profit motive actually are a very efficient way of organizing things within regulations. Like I know there's Enron and there's um, lots of examples of capitalism gone awry, but at its core, the profit motive and competition, I would say, find efficiency and increase outcomes. Now, this is like again why politics exists. Yeah, we're, we're yeah, we, I mean, we'd argue argue about that. And I, but I, we have I, rule of law. F- yes, you rule you of know, law. But I, I, I mean, I fundamentally disagree in terms of introducing that motive in, into the public healthcare system. But look at competition, further. though. If you had two companies providing food. I mean, because I get that it's a bit different when it's a procedure, but if we think of something one step down from there, so like the linens, which has to be done properly in mm-hmm. the hospital, there's real outcome issues. Yeah, absolutely. If you had, if we started three companies, and I do a bad job because I'm pursuing profits to the detriment of the outcomes, I'm going to be out of business. Now I know that it has to be regulated. Like I'm not a full free market guy, but I don't, I don't see the fundamental issue because we have rule of law. The corruption can happen in a public system. Mm-hmm. Loss of efficiency can happen in a public system. Like, there's nothing about the public system that protects you from human nature or some of the bad things that can happen. And if I'm an Albertan, Canadians have a thing with our healthcare system. We're very proud of it. Yeah. And it's true. And even I, I support the Healthcare Act. Like, I think publicly funded, because when you're in the States and you see commercials for hospitals, it's mm-hmm. a bit weird. But uh, as I also said, like, the system, the train we're on now is not going to a good outcome. Like something has to get better. Out, um, budgets are getting more expensive and outcomes are getting worse. So we need to do something. So I guess what I'm saying is, and this is back to we actually found something we have a different worldview on, is like private involvement to me is not fundamentally wrong. I, yeah, no, that is something that we, we, would, we would fundamentally disagree on. I, don't, I think that the public element in the healthcare system should actually be expanded. So should doctors be on a government salary then, or do you like the system? Oh, I, I would love it if doctors were on a government salary. The doc, you know. right. <laughs> and what would happen to all the good doctors? Well, Alberta's the best place to live. Because they're not on salary. Oh, okay. do, do, doc, doctors in Alberta are incredibly well compensated. So, <laughs> so I, I think you, we're never going to reach agreement between the two of you. There's a fundamental difference in position. Let's talk about education. 
Okay. Can, we, can we switch gears? Because we've got a few questions about this, actually. It's not very controversial, is it? Education or your your the, positions the, on health care? No, 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 education. Cur- curriculum review? <laughs> well, I mean, this is what's being discussed, right? It, um, right now, the N- the NDP is conducting a, a curriculum review with, with uh, education experts, teachers, parents, stakeholders, all that stuff. Jason Kenney has said that... Um, well, actually, I'm not 100% clear on what he said. Is he going to hit the brakes on the curriculum review? Dave will tell you what the NDP is saying that Jason Kenney is saying, and then I will tell you what the UCP <laughs> is actually saying. Okay, well, I think this is important. Dave, well, from, what are you hearing? From what I understand, at his press conference when he announced this, he said he would basically, and it, the UCP has been saying they would basically, they're basically going to throw out the 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 curriculum review that's been going on for the past i don't know six or seven years it's actually i think believe it actually started under the progressive conservative government and then this past week i think jason kenney changed his tune a bit said i you know we're going to review it instead of actually throwing it pause out because, and review. pause and review because there was there was a quite a significant backlash when he yeah. said we're actually going to throw it out because they're like the people who are actually working on this review are not like ndp hacks like this isn't a partisan thing right. these are these are professional educators. Then, these are, you know, these are academics. These are people who know a lot about curriculum, who this is their expertise. Yeah. And there are a lot of groups who, a lot of groups outside of that in terms of, 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 of consultations that have been happening. So this is like an incredibly involved process. So the whole idea that a government would, would th- just totally right. throw it out is, is, would just be really wasteful because you'd essentially just be restarting the exact same process right I, afterward. And I actually think, well, I hope the UCP realizes the, the, the wisdom of, pausing the pause and thinking a bit and actually accepting that some of the work is probably fine. Yeah, I think a lot of it is actually probably fine. One of the issues I I have with the NDP is if they want to eliminate this boogeyman of an ideological that they're all just handing out copies of Mouseland to kids and stuff, why don't they say who these experts are? For the first time in at least modern history, I don't know what modern history means, they won't actually reveal the names of the people leading their curriculum review. Now maybe it's because these poor people with private lives don't want to get Andrew Leached and Dave Mowatted and become political actors. I understand. But like if you don't want to be accused of being this shadowy, ideologically um, secret secret group, well, then who are they? Who's accusing them of being a shadowy shadowy ideological group? Like well, are, partisans. are these partisans? Yeah. So these are these are partisans, these are groups like Well what the, the, ed- the education UCP groups who support is, the UCP? I mean the, No, the, the UCP itself. So okay. they're saying they're the, so if I can frame it how I understand it. The UCP is saying that this review, the pendulum, so we've seen a draft of the curriculum, K-4, to that the pendulum has shifted a little bit too too far the other way, that especially in terms of social studies, they've thrown out basically all of um, traditional Canadian history and moved towards a bunch of topics which aren't wrong in and of themselves, around Indigenous history and around um, like non-European colonial history and so i think like it's le- less focusing on like which is the red part of the map and which is the blue part of the map which was like, i seem to remember my social yeah. studies focused a lot we didn't on. learn about indigenous nations and stuff yeah. i mean it's true and I, the ucp is not disputing that but what they're saying is there's also quite a bit of stuff that is good so they've talked about in the document i've seen they point out that the math review is good that the which is the other one um there actually is no concern uh, around the sex ed piece. So it's a myth that the UCP is concerned about. Like the the NDP and the political left is saying, Rob Ford, Rob Ford, well, you're that, worried about Well, that's the consent. big issue in 
in, in Ontario, Ontario which not is here. The, the UCP okay. has actually explicitly said we don't have any concerns with the sex ed component of the curriculum. But there, the NDP left an opening for this boogeyman thing by not saying who these experts are. I think we're, I think my party is being a little bit um, boogeyman-ish by, by, you know, like Mouseland. I don't care if students read Mouseland <laughs> because if a social studies teacher gave me um, Atlas Shrugged, I wouldn't freak out either. Mm-hmm. Like, I think as long as you're not actually indoctrinating your grade tour with socialist, like I trust teachers, I guess is what yep. I'm saying. But I think the NDP could do themselves a favor here if they just said who these experts were. The UCP is now saying, we just want to review it all. We want to make sure it's good before we give it our blanket approval. And I think that's actually pretty credible. I have to say, as a parent, once we became parents, all of a sudden teachers became the most important people in our life, other than our family. Mm-hmm. Those teachers we have now, those two teachers, spend more time with my kids than I do. Yeah. And when I go to the classroom, when I volunteer, they love our kids. One of our So the lady who taught both of our kids kindergarten is working on the curriculum for the school board. And I trust her infinitely. So I think the ND, the UCP is in danger here of overplaying it. Mm-hmm. And I think the NDP could do themselves a favor and just say who these people are. But I wonder if it's someone controversial. I hate to name names. Well, what if it was a Chris Wells? Or what if it was uh, hmm. someone that... Like the Sephora Berman of the, uh, of the education right. sector? Exactly. Because this is what happened with the royalty review. It became about them. The... And it became about the, the people involved. Yeah. Not yeah. about the decision. Mm-hmm. And once you're... Once you're a political actor on the stage, it's a whole different thing. Well, and I think that's the idea is they don't want these, you know, the, the, probably the people who are working on this curriculum review don't really want to become a political actors. But, but we but elect officials yeah. who get to decide. That's the way our government works. And officials put their names on the ballot. So, like, to some degree, you can't have it both ways. If you want to have this kind of impact on their curriculum, you should be willing to sign your name to it, I think. There, there's an interesting question from Dan McDonald in the mailbag who asks, uh, you know, if if scrapping the new curriculum will be a major issue during the campaign. We've said we, they, no, we, I'm actually not officially part of the UCB other than my local board. They've said they won't scrap it. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important, like, okay, we're reviewing a curriculum that, that needs what? It's like th- three decades old or something like that. Yeah, so I this is remember. important. The yeah. idea that a single, um, and and in deference to the people who've been involved, like a, a long and, and I have to believe a really well thought out process is going to nail it is kind of absurd. Like, I don't think, you know, to Dan's question, it sounds like no one's suggesting we throw the baby out with the bathwater. But we're going to like, frankly, they should be reviewing curriculum all the time. We should make it yeah. a public. I think I mean, it should make it be a more public process. And, and that way you get the politics out of it. Maybe. Although. Although I will say, why do I think I'm an expert in education if I'm not an expert in other things? So, like, would I expect a, pr- a public review of engineering standards or building safety codes? No, I would want the five smartest people to get in a room. Yeah, and don't come out till you figure yeah, it out. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But education is different. Like, it's more. Well, it's more. You're more personally connected. It is. Yeah, and it's emotional. We have more choices. It's, parents can pull their kids out of school. They can do homeschooling. They can do one of the things that makes the Edmonton Public School Board so successful is choice. Yeah competition back to that so within like, the public system we are yeah we are more <laughs> we are more invested in education so i mean part of me wants to say just get the five smartest people in a room lock the door and tell tell us what to do but that's my elitist <laughs> side my populist side says they should open it up totally they should bring in citizens and we should all decide i think the wisdom is somewhere in between i agree i think the way around it, it so a full disclosure i was i was working at an agency 
at the time of the royalty review and we worked with um, the royalty review panel on how they would communicate with the public. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's what's missing. What went right and what went poorly there? Well, the, you know what? There's no good deed of trying to let the public know what's happening will go unpunished. Like, mm-hmm. it's so difficult in a fragmented media environment to reach everybody and let them yeah. know what's going on. Having said that, and I know, like, I've seen politicians, I've seen individuals from from the Department of Education post about the new curriculum, and here's the link to it. But I think it's almost, it feels too much to me as an outsider looking in, like a ta-da. Ta-da, we've, we've revised the curriculum. You have nothing to worry about. Look at it. It's right here. It's human nature, though, because they've worked on it for so long. But, I, but what I would have liked to see is communications about the progress for how they're updating the curriculum. So I think our audience is a deep dive, long read type of Mm -hmm. audience. We should should post the link. Yeah, we'll post the link and and see. I mean, even I have to admit, I've skimmed it and read everyone else's analysis of it. I haven't dived deeply into it. Mm -hmm. Me neither. So we're we're all, we're being what pundits do best, which is uninformed, but sure, we're going to take but a opinionated. Yeah. So, what? so in, in, in terms of, sorry, just before you, before you go on, Adam, in terms of will this be an, an, an issue in the election, I don't really think this will be an issue in the election, but I think there's a danger for the United Conservative Party, in, not in terms of themselves, like the actual party going after this issue because I don't think that I don't I, I think they've kind of backed off on it a bit but I think in terms of their allies I think that's where the issue is is yeah. and this is a Taking case extreme of position yeah and this is the case of sometimes your friends can be your worst enemies especially during election campaigns so yeah. there's a whole cottage industry of like right-wing parent groups out there right now in Alberta well, uh, what was what's the one that was parents for choice in education yeah. the one that was, like was Gar- Garnet Garnet uh, the MP founded that one way back in the day I don't know about that I honestly don't know but okay. they so UCP and its its candidates and its leadership team will be disciplined and nuanced yeah I do share a concern about that that our allies and the orbit of interest groups will yep. not be nuanced and disciplined and will be very inflammatory yeah and say that the NDP wants to teach te- turn kindergarten into like sex ed workshops and just crazy <laughs> yeah. stuff yeah the, yeah just, just like the ndp candidate in lethbridge being uncredible by saying you have to sell your house to get a surgery if jason Kenney's premier we're gonna we're at very high risk of doing the same thing on the other side yeah mm. yeah no i think i think that's that's where the ucp is really gonna have to watch and this out. is the shield for the ucp at its core and this is the problem with healthcare and education they're fundamentally in the ndp's advantage and they are fundamentally not our issues so yeah so one of the questions that we got this week was, is is this making, is Jason Kenney making it harder on himself in the UCP by introducing, uh, sorry, he, the, the question asker says by introducing controversial and divisive platforms in terms of health and education. But I think what we've talked about here is that, or sorry, my interpretation of what we've talked about here is the rhetoric is certainly controversial, uh, maybe even inflammatory, but what's actually written down on paper isn't insane it's like the meta yeah this is this is the conversation about the conversation yeah i mean we're seeing clear differences in terms of policy between between the two main parties but we haven't seen policy from the well the government well we've we've seen we're seeing a difference between the united conservative party and what the ndp has done over the past four years we haven't actually seen what what the ndp's healthcare policy is but even education policy is going to the next election um but we're we've been the ucp's been pretty meta about it too everyone kind of 
everyone it's like we're we're talking about the conversation yeah like because really if you boil down the ucp education program it's pause and review and we think some of this is okay right really at the end of the day they haven't said what they'll do at all but they're there's a built-in understanding from some voter groups that this thing is wrong and yeah. bad. Yeah. Just like on the healthcare side from the NDP, they're basically just saying, we're not going to do what Jason Kenney's done, or okay. will do. Can I throw out maybe a, a controversial suggestion? The, part of what drives seems to drive this conversation is this idea that if the non-incumbent government is elected, or the non-incumbent party is elected, they will undo all the things the previous government has done. Or many, let's say many. Can we get away from politics like that? Like, it drives me nuts when well, they're when they're like, "Okay, you know, the last four years, we're gonna we're scrapping all of that." Well, it's a zero sum game. In fairness, the UCP, the, the UCP has said that said that explicitly. No, I know that. Yeah, yeah. I know that, and I'm <laughs> saying I'm saying that's. F- I'll drop another f bomb. That's fucking insane. Well, it's for any government or for any party bit, to say. It is a little bit undermining. Like you can't race to the bottom forever on that stuff. Yeah, but but what happens if? If they get elected and they're like, you know what, there's some pretty good stuff here. We're not. That's gonna what do always it. happens. Well, okay. that, I, well think, I, hope I think so. that's that's everyone who's ever yeah. governed anywhere, except come, in the except in the United States. Well, okay, yeah, Trump the, just and, breaks and that, everything. Honestly, that's what I'm. That's what comes to mind right now. But for every me. every opposition party promises to change everything. I mean, look at look at democratic reform and Justin Trudeau. He said we're going to move to this oh, yeah. new oh, system. Yeah. This, and this will be the last first he, pass the post. Yeah. Like, how many times did he say that? That's but that's not only his fault. In addition to being his fault, it's also just how politics works. <laughs> so, like, I, I really do think if the UCP forms government this time in 2023, the NDP is going to campaign on undoing everything Jason Kenney did. I could write the talking points now. We're going to walk back all the Jason Kenney damage. But it's just, like, I, I guess what you're saying in an Alberta party way is we need to do politics differently, but <laughs> I hate that you've accused me of that. But yes, I guess so. The I I, th- I think where the cons- where the, where the concern is, I mean, it, it it does feel like a zero sum game right now. Um, but I think because Jason Kenney has been so clear about you know from over the past year or two saying you know we're gonna when I, you know if I get elected we're gonna have a legislative session we'll have the summer of repeal and we're summer gonna repeal. the summer they even gave it a name uh you know they, they said we basically we're already drawing up laws you know not only have we we measured the curtains but we're we've actually ordered the furniture and it's waiting in the back of the van for us to move in but I would also um, suggest the two of you don't resonate with all Albertans concerned neither do I no <laughs> one person mm-hmm. does there are Albertans out there many for whom that sort of talk is exactly what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. Oh no, absolutely. And he, he's he's. I mean, he's he's playing to it to an audience. It, it's a message that that is yeah. clearly working among UCP supporters. Um, but it is. I mean, it, it it's kind of the kind of language that we really haven't seen like at to that degree. No, we have in politics. Sure. He's so, a different type of opponent. Well, and I mean, <laughs> I know that your audience, Dave, won't believe this, but. Within UCP, I'm actually not really perceived as being particularly uh, right-wing. Well, yeah, Red Ryan. Yeah. (laughs) And this is what comforts me about our system, and even, frankly, about the U.S. system. They'll stick to ours. Is that after all the rhetoric, when governments form and they get into office and they get their briefing documents, they actually find out that the reality is a little bit different than what they campaigned on. And incremental change is usually the the, the most they do is incremental change. There's rarely things that are actually like world-shattering changes that are made by any government. Some are, but generally the public service is there to moderate. And that's why 
Rachel Notley didn't manage to turn us all into Communist Party members, <laughs> and Jason Kenney's not going to privatize oxygen because there actually is a moderating force to government, right? I mean, even on the Iverson campaign, like is Don Iverson the mayor the same as Don Iverson the, the candidate? Probably not, because governing forces you to the middle. Rachel Notley is now a pipeline advocate. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you on, on, on one point. I'm going to, I'm going to hold you. I'm going to, going to hold you. I, well, one of us are going to be held accountable for this at some point over the next year. Um, Write this down. Now. Is, is uh, <laughs> uh, unless Rachel Notley gets reelected in, in, in a couple weeks. Or Mandel. Then or, or Steve Mandel becomes premier, and then <laughs> we're never going to interview the premier on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I do think that. And my prediction is that that a UCP government led by Jason Kenney will be uh, more radical than I'm not saying like crazy, you know, like Kansas radical, like Sam Brownback kind of stuff. But I, I think they will be more radical and more ideologically conservative than we're used to in Alberta politics. This is not the old progressive conservative party, the yeah, old brokerage party. I do so, agree with that. So I do think that I do think Kenny actually is a conservative. He actually is a conservative and 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 in a, a conservative in a different way than we're used to in, in provincial politics in Alberta in terms yeah. of like the our well, conservative the end, premiers. So the PC party I, was a brokerage party. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was. It was it followed the polls. It was a the Progressive Conservative Party was an amorphous blob that yeah. that just governed. You but had but Hancock I, and Morton in the same cabinet. Yeah. So so I do think that I do think there will be less moderation, um, at, least, at least initially, uh, with a government led by Jason Kenney Maybe in Alberta. You point me to the public service. I could be the clerk. <laughs> I'd do a better job in committee than the federal guy just did. <laughs> what does that job pay? Probably pretty good. Not Can you still come on the pod if you're... No, uh, no? absolutely not. Okay, well, well, we'll do our best to make sure you don't get appointed as the clerk <laughs> of, the, of the Alberta Privy No, Council. I want to lead the Alberta Space Force. Oh, yeah. yeah. We talked about that in our last podcast. Well, that is definitely a thing that someone's going to promise, right? That's the only reason I'm here. Believe me, I bring it up in and, all my internal... And by here, I mean on this earth. <laughs> <laughs> Not just was, on this pod. I was listening to the podcast without me, and you guys talked about space. Yeah. And I was like, I was talking out loud, and no one was responding to me because it was pre-recorded. And we'll, we'll have to do a special edition where we just talk about space. Yes. I do have one question for you guys uh, before we move on to the mailbag segment, and that is... What is missing right now for the com- from the political conversation that you're looking forward to hearing about? Is there anything that immediately comes to mind, or is that, uh, is that too hard of a question? Or are you just excited for whatever the first televised debate's going to be? Because <laughs> that's going to be fun. Kind of stumped stumped yeah, a little bit uh, i'll th- I'll think about it, and we'll get back to you in the next uh, on the next episode. That works. We're just so either jaded or meta i don't know what it is meta jaded about this that we i almost don't expect any more than what i've seen from either side okay here's another question does this campaign and i think i know the answer is it going to get worse before it gets better yes yeah if you're talking about it being it being negative i think it'll be i think we'll likely see a very negative campaign from from both sides um i think particularly particularly i think maybe from the ndp as they if if their numbers in the polls don't improve that uh, and we saw this with the the launch of their truth the truth about, about Jason, Jason Kenney. Yeah, the truth oh, about Jason Kenney about that. Does that move the needle? Like isn't that already mm-hmm. baked into the price here? Like don't people already know all this? Well, I, I I think I mean I I don't know that the website alone moves the needle on its own. I think that it's part of the NDP campaign. I think that if Jason Kenney becomes an becomes an election question I think that it does move the needle a bit. It probably doesn't move the needle enough for the yeah. for for the, the 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 NDP to win the election alone, um, but 
it's having an election path. it's the best path having an election where you're where the ndp where where the defining uh question is rachel notley or jason kenny right i think that 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 plays well for the ndp yeah. mm-hmm. well a year um, ago talking about the ballot question yeah that's what we said or you know what is the ndp's ballot question yeah. jason Kenny. yeah yeah no I th- and i think that's and if we've seen the ndp uh, you know, I mean, f- go fairly negative on Kenny and try to highlight Notley positive. I mean, their campaign is Rachel Notley. That is their campaign. Um, I, th- I think that the the negative attacks on Kenny have kind of overshadowed the Notley aspect so far. But I think that we'll see a real them try really trying to contrast between the two leaders. And I mean, as we both know, uh, in electoral politics in uh, in 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 Canada and Alberta, the leaders play a big role because yeah. most people don't know who their local candidate is. They know the parties and they know the leaders. And And we've seen um, uh, evidence through polling that has, have over the, has come out over the, pa- out over the past few years. Rachel Notley is the NDP's strongest asset. And Jason Kenney, his party is leading by a significant amount in the polls, but in terms of his own personal approval ratings, he's not their strongest asset. So it, I think it works for the NDP to try to make yeah. that the election. If you're issue. them. Yep. If you're them, which issue do you want this to be about? Absolutely, Jason. Yeah. I think I think you do have to be careful not uh, alienating the the undecideds. Yeah, the people who are, are there like undecideds. I don't know. I, I mean, think, I, think I, I think there are. Twenty fifteen showed that people change their vote. Yeah, people change their mind. Yeah, but but How many folks are there out there. Let, well, folks who are maybe less inclined or on the fence about whether or not they even want to participate. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, is the difference between undecideds or may not vote. Yeah, I think that that's what I that's what I was referring to. And right. Our audience, my gut is. If you're still listening to this podcast episode, <laughs> at, at, at you will one hour vote. and 38 minutes yeah. or whatever we You are will now. vote and you are not undecided. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of funny because we're we're talking about this unicorn group that none of us really are. Yeah. But yet they're out there. Yeah. People, there are people who voted conservative their whole life who voted NDP last time. Yeah. There are supporters of both parties who stayed home and this time will stay home. And maybe that's the game. I mean, this is why you get so jaded about it, because part of the best tactic would be to demotivate the other side's voters from voting at all. Well, and that's that that is that is I mean, every party tries to do that. You're trying to You're not gonna turn an NDP voter, but you can convince them to stay home. Yeah. Or the other way around. And that's not good. Like I don't think that leads to any good outcome. No. Yeah. I don't think so either. Yeah. Well that and that I think that's one discussion that we don't really have in politics at all is we talk when you talk about polls we talk about oh the ucp is at this percent the ndp is at this percent and the other parties are here but we don't talk about what about everybody who's actually not going to vote like, like these are people vote. who are who are intended yeah. are, are, are intending to vote so on, you know right. on, when and when election is held we talk about how well the parties did but for the most part especially in alberta politics like the majority or if not very close to the majority don't actually vote and i think that that's the kind of conversation we really need to have when we're talking about you know, when you talk about democratic reform, when you talk about creating a, you know, creating a vibrant political system, a vibrant electoral system, which we've had a lot of discussions about over the past few years, uh, in in Alberta, with in in terms of amend, uh, amend, amendments and reforms to election legislation, we've never really had a discussion about what about that massive group of people yeah. who don't vote. Like the no vote party wins every election, basically. Mm-hmm. This isn't just an Alberta issue. No, no, it's not an Alberta it's issue. Like it's the Western it's, world. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you how do you deal with that? So anyway, send us your suggestions, and <laughs> we'll uh, we'll read them out on the next episode, or steal them from you. Okay, it's that time of the show where we dip into our mailbag. We did things a little bit differently today, bringing questions into other parts of the conversation. So we managed to whittle this down to three. And guys, I'm starting to feel like we got to give Mountain Ted some kind of I don't know T-shirt or something. 
because he always has a question for us. He's the most insightful anonymous account I've ever seen. Yeah, Abs- do, absolutely. Thank just, you so much, Mount Ted. And, and we do need t-shirts, by the way. We do need Dave yeah. Brown t-shirts. Okay, well, we'll talk about we'll, that. We'll work on that. Later. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's an election thing. Would we have to register as a pack if we had t-shirts during the election? I think only if we spend more than $1,000. That is definitely We're not We're also happening. media, so we don't count. Right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Mountain Ted, first question. A good one. What do you think about the revised photo radar rules? Is the NDP trying to butter up drivers? And what other goodies could be offered when the polls look bleak? Are you going to point to which of us? No, I, th- I think Ryan, in terms of from I, what I understand, you're our resident photo radar expert. I hate uh, photo radar. Well, because you, you receive a lot of them, right? Because <laughs> yeah. you drive But also because it's unjust and it is absurd and it's abused. When Brian Mason... Although he's looking retirement in the face and now he doesn't care anymore. It does feel but like he's holding up a couple of middle well, fingers. Well, did you see what he retweeted? Yes. Someone said that this yes. is the best thing the NDP's <laughs> ever done and he retweeted it. it I don't great. think he meant to read it in that way. Anyway, this is something that Leanne even more strongly feels. But because she drives really fast? Photo radar has no public <laughs> safety value, no correctional value to behavior, and it is a pure cash cow and governments abuse it and they're not honest about how they use the money. I would scrap it tomorrow. And this is part of the anti-car, anti-commuter conspiracy that you left-wing people have. <laughs> and, and how do you feel about bike lanes? <laughs> you, you hate the car. You hate driving. See, this is, yeah. The thing about bike lanes is if we didn't feel like you hated cars, not you too, but you know, your people, then we wouldn't get so upset about this. But when I'm driving, try living in St. Albert or Short Park or Spruce Grove or Mill Woods and not having a car. Like we are, we're, we're a small, prairie, spread out, cold city. People have to drive. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you've you've lost me here. But I love this. This is probably my favorite NDP policy ever. <laughs> and they didn't even really say what they're going to do. They're we got to ring the bell it. or something. That's yeah. ding 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 ding. <laughs> They've hit I the would, mark with with Ryan's demographic. Photo radar is um, it is criminal. I, I I don't have a problem with photo radar. I've never received a photo radar ticket because what? i don't speed do you drive like an old man I, he well, does, i drive within the speed limit so which is like an old man in this which province. which is which is why i don't get photo radar so when tickets. you're on the white mud drive and it's clearly designed for 100 or 110 <laughs> and you're going 84 and you get a ticket in the mail you're not mad well i've never gotten a ticket in the mail so so my philosophy is i i'm with dave and i get photo radar tickets all the don't, time don't speed and you won't get a ticket okay but I'm shaking my head. But hang on. Right but Mountain Ted was asking. Oh, right. There's more to it. What okay. do we th- What do we think about the revised rules? Now, are you familiar with what was what was proposed? Basically, the the top line is, if municipalities cannot indicate how photo radar is materially beneficial to safety, it's gone. Bingo. I, th- I, I think that's fair. Thank yeah. you, Brian. Mason. I mean, because that seems to be the argument that um, that municipalities tend to use is that this does get people to slow down and, and increase his safety um i th- i think it probably does uh but i think the municipality should should have to go through the the the, da- the process of, pro- of proving that david staples had a piece like a year ago about i think it was either edson or hinton was this the one where he got a footer to ticket and he had like an angry photo of himself maybe holding a photo there's, like, there's a honeypot part on the highway oh i know exactly Yellowhead. where you're talking about going through Hint- i think it's going through hinton it drops or down Edson. very suddenly yes. from yeah. highway speed to yep. like 50 yeah and they always just a place where there's literally never a public safety concern over that 
And yet the photo radar is always there. Also, I, I do know people who have gotten photo radar tickets yeah. there, though. I drive to Jasper quite frequently from Edmonton, right. and I've never gotten a photo radar ticket. Because you drive like an old man. Because well, <laughs> I, I, I observe, observe the rule of law. The other law. thing that drives me <laughs> absolutely crazy. <laughs> oh, now you observe the rule of law. This, okay. is, yeah, this is becoming a law and order podcast. <laughs> the thing that drives me bonkers, too, is I live very close to an Anthony Hende overpass. Hmm. And there is, a, there, are, there is a photo radar truck there 80% of the time. So at rush hour, when the whole city's trying to get somewhere, and you're telling me people going 112 on the Henday is the like the worst thing, like it's just so bad. When you when you go to other jurisdictions with high speed limits, like for example, I was just in the states, and on the interstates, it opens up to 75, which is like 135, and it's great. Everybody goes. Like, I guess this just drives me crazy because I get a lot of them, but also I think it's unjust. Yeah. Fair enough. So, is do you, do you think this is like, is this the NDP trying to better up the? Well, it the, won't work though, because well, no. it's you type of people who hate cars and live downtown. Who <laughs> aren't going to vote for the like? You know what I'm saying? They're they're trying to win me over. It ain't going to work. Right. Like, I got to tell you, you can't keep saying you people. <laughs> <laughs> I actually meant you too. But, um, well, governments always do this. There's also a rumor, and I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet that. They're going to be announcing the twinning of the Ray Gibbon Drive leading into St. Albert off the Henday. I mean, any government worth its political sort of salt would be making these types of promises right now. So yeah. I don't really criticize it. I criticize it sort of like self-awarely, like don't hate the game, hate the player kind of thing. <laughs> but what other? I think Ted asked about what other goodies there could be. Yeah, what, what what other goodies could be offered when polls keep looking bleak? I expect to see an infrastructure list. Yeah. Specific yeah. schools, specific hospital yeah. refurbishments, specific projects so that every local NDP um, contestant, nominee, candidate can say, oh, you oppose the old uh, Hinton school expansion? How yeah. dare you, right? Like well, They're going to make it painful. Yeah, and, and also as, as we go through... Every time in this period in the election cycle, there'll be re-announcements. And then, oh, re right. and then re re-announcements. Yeah. yeah, and we've already seen some of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one, one question that I'm thinking of, do you think anyone in this election campaign talks about high-speed rail between Alberta's two major cities? Not seriously. No. No. Because Kenny is an actual conservative, I think that that would just be way too big of a risk well like, you can't drive a f ford 150 on a on a speed rail like, yeah. a, like a caveman <laughs> well we, we'd be pretty styling cavemen if we uh if we had a high speed rail train between edmonton and calgary i mean it may be a great idea i think it's a good idea considering uh, that or some kind of some kind of actual infrastructure transit like public right. transit infrastructure between the two we major don't cities have the population for it. i mean the every how many studies have been done right i like the idea mm -hmm. i also like the idea of well, a space but, elevator but, but the study but the studies that have been done have been sent to the the uh, the committee the what's what's the committee the 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 standing committee on Alberta's economic future, which is like the place where ideas go to die. Like <laughs> okay, they send this this it's the committee rail. where. But where does high speed rail exist in this world between huge populations? Yeah, in places not, like Japan yeah. and Europe. not places with maybe three million people on the corridor. Like we can't even do this in Canada between Montreal and Toronto. The only way this works, and and this is for the yellow vest crowd, is if we allow more immigrants into Canada. I'm glad you brought that up. Oh, okay, I was only making a joke. <laughs> no, I am why very, are you glad? I'm very upset that the yellow vest, quote unquote, issue has been allowed to be hijacked by anti-immigrant xenophobes because it is so discredited. Like most of them are my father-in-law, millwrights who work in the oil sands, and 
are very upset at the lack of job prospects and where the economy is going. Most of these, most of that group, the people who are out there honking horns on the trucks, driving around the Anthony Henday that day, are good people. But there are a few bad apples um, who are focused. You know, like that sign that we saw where it's like Justin Trudeau is a traitor. Hang him for treason. It, it, it yeah. makes me so angry. It makes me more angry than I think critics of the left are angry about it because you're tarnishing a movement that actually is mostly good. Like the bad apples in there, the guys who are focused on immigration and mm-hmm. hang Justin Trudeau should be slapped. Because they're making it easy to discredit the whole thing. Because now when people think of the Yellow Vest movement, they think of that. Yeah. Not well, of, that's what it's basically been defined as now. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. And, but, I, and I, I think that there's some, like, when you look at, for example, the, the maybe not this, I mean, the, the convoy to Ottawa, but the people, not necessarily the people who even went to, the, who participated in the convoy, because I think that was a mixed bag, but the people who would who support the idea. I think there's some, like, real legitimate grievances about the state of the economy, about... Uh, the cost of living, um, like there, you know, we've, we've like we've talked about the on this pod before. There's the economy is, you know, there seems to be no doubt that the economy is recovering in Alberta, but it seems to, but it's what what's been described as a jobless recovery. So the economy is doing quite well. Companies are making a lot of money. Restaurants, uh, you know, restaurant, mon, restaurant, uh, uh, mon, mon, restaurant Bills revenues are, are re- revenues receipts, are up. Yeah. Receipts are up. But we haven't necessarily seen the jobs, the un- unemployment level, really impacted in a, in a meaningful way to where it was before when the price of oil was at 130 bucks, and you know everybody had jobs and and everybody was driving a Ford F-150. Uh, I drive one by the way. Okay, well there you go. You you're our resident uh, F Ford F-150 uh, 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 co-host. Um, so there's there are some like legi- I think people have legitimate grievances, but th- like the issue around like having all these racists and Nazis and like anti-immigrant people who believe there's a United Nations are, are flying around in black helicopters and are going to like yeah. Im- impose like Sharia law. No, it's, it's crazy. Like it's crazy. It's crazy. And I think in terms of the, 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 the convoys and the pro pipeline movement, um, or the pro, pro pipeline groups, I think I heard, I think it was Cody Battershill. Who's like with, is he with action Canada? Is that him? One of them. One yeah. Of them. Yeah. He actually like, his group actually didn't even participate in it yeah. in the convoy because they didn't want to be associated right. with a bunch of racists. And I think that's, that's what needs to be done. This whole thing, like hearing the, the organizer of the convoy to Ottawa kind of moaning and bemoaning, Oh, you know, we really didn't want to have these people. They don't really represent our views, but we had to go anyway. No, no, no. Like you're associating with them. You gotta, you know, you gotta take a clear stance. If, if you don't want people to associate you with these people, with people with those views, then actually take a clear stance. But to like, basically allow them to come on the ride but say oh they don't represent our views like well you know they may not represent your personal views but you're certainly you're 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 they're in they're they're within your ranks um so i mean it it is frustrating because there are legitimate (laughs) grievances but um the whole thing was kind of a sham and it ended up being a bit of a shamble the guy who is the spokesperson for it is a uh fellow by the name of and i'm just going to find his name and get it right here glenn carrot he's the owner of an oil field fire and safety company in innisfail He's also a counselor there. Yeah, This guy cannot get out of his own way. He is the problem. Because on one hand, he's saying, no, this is about pipelines and, and oil to tidewater. And then in a, in a, when he was speaking with CDC, CBC from their article, it says, Carrot said Canada's borders, quote, need to be controlled, end quote, by Canada and its citizens, not the United Nations. Like, th- this is not the person who should be representing this movement. Literally, no one is is calling on the United Nations to look look like to control Canada's borders. No. Like the whole idea it's it's a giant cons- internet conspiracy. There's theory. that compact that we signed. Yeah, it's thing. it's a it was it was a it's more aspirational. It was thing. an aspirational 
motion. Like it wasn't a, this isn't like a treaty or like some, like an actual law that's imposed. I mean, it's not a real thing. It's an internet conspiracy theory. Yeah. And, yeah, it's, and it's unfortunate that that it has basically overtaken yeah. you know this an issue. important conversation. Yeah, well, exactly. And one of the things that happens when genuine when people genuinely feel like they're not part of the process and no one's listening to them is this is how Donald Trump got elected. Like flyover country got flown over for 100 years straight and he went to flyover country and said I'm going to solve your problems and come with me. I'm yeah. going to bring back coal. I'm going to, you know, you can see mm-hmm. how it happens here because this group, like I feel much more empathy to the, not the bad apples, but to the actual, the guys who actually wear yellow vests mm-hmm. to work. Um, because those are typically just good Albertans trying to raise their families, right? Like they're not, well, a lot when, of them. When, when I talk about the yellow vests, I don't talk about the, the actual no. people who wear them you like, mean for the safety capital. reasons. I yeah. mean like the people who are wearing right. them for like internet conspiracy capital theory reasons. Yellow yeah, like you know, the, I agree. Th- those are separate, right? Uh, me too, I agree. And that's why I can't stand those guys because they're corrupting it for the, the actual salt of the earth yellow vest. Yeah, like, and it's actually like taking it from, I mean, the, the yellow, vest, yellow vest movement in France, like the reason why it's a yellow vest is because in France, all drivers are required to keep a yellow vest for safety reasons right. in their car, which is actually a really smart idea. Uh, right. And well, I yes- think I might buy an orange vest to keep it in my car. Yesterday I was in <laughs> Mark's work warehouse with my dad because he was shopping for a coat. And if you go to the back section, it's there's a whole yellow vest section. Yeah. Like so many urban latte drinking MacBook guys. Like Ryan me. just lifted up his latte. Yeah, don't <laughs> understand even the term. But yeah. the term yellow yeah. vest resonates with a huge section of the Canadian population. So I think we agree that the bad apples need to be told to screw off. Absolutely. So that was a very circuitous way of answering (laughs) one of or three of (laughs) Mountain Ted's question while we inserted some. Thanks again, Mountain Ted. Yeah, thanks for that question. Uh, Our next one comes from Andrew Ewell. He asks, the novelty-sized guarantee contract that Jason Kenney has signed, does this help or harm a campaign? I mean, what do you guys think? Darned if he does, and darned if he doesn't. Jason, the how many of our questions were about Jason Kenney's radical, ideological, <laughs> um, controversial cuts to healthcare? And the only thing he signed literally said, "I will not cut healthcare." <laughs> so, like, if he signs a big check or doesn't sign a big check, it almost doesn't change the political narrative. So, yeah, I mean, if if and when he does, uh, you know, actually in- introduce massive privatization into into Alberta healthcare, uh, you'll definitely have people pointing out photos of this sign as as yeah. was circu- as was circulated around the internet the the photo of him signing the grassroots guarantee or all these types of things yeah the reform this, party signing well, off on the pension yeah or, or and this, this, this is this is very typical like canadian taxpayers federation and it's popular stunt you know giant inflatable pork chop kind of stunt mm-hmm. remember um, remember the reform party and the trench for the, when they were early ref- like we were all in whew. grade school but they they were making um, jokes about the MP pension, and so they had like a pig trench on Parliament Hill, and they all signed a thing saying they wouldn't do it. And now they're all they're retired all and collecting in. their pensions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this okay. is why I'm not a populist, so it doesn't appeal to me yeah. or any of us three. But I yeah. think there is a group for whom this is. Oh yeah, and I mean, visuals are visuals are important in well, politics. And so here's an interesting follow up question from Andrew. He asks, "Is there a campaign prop you've seen that is more cringeworthy?" I mean, the trough thing well, in I was Ottawa. on a bus once, which <laughs> resulted in some cringing. <laughs> Did it have anything to do with wheels and Danielle Smith? I can't confirm. We, we, we don't have to, we, I think most of, our, most of our listenership will be familiar with that incident. I, I'll say this. Uh, this maybe wasn't, I, I don't know about campaign prop, but as I, I think back to like absurd stunts, 
uh, nothing says stunt to me like Stockwell Day on his ski do or his sea do rather. Like, you know what that one w- was reminded me of? Nancy, was she Macbeth or Batowski at the time? Was she liberal leader? Liberal she leader. Was Nancy Macbeth. With an old car. Oh, yeah. From like 1973. This was the 2001 election. Yeah, saying, see how this old car is old? That's what your government is. Yeah. <laughs> well, because, yeah, I, for, I totally forgot about that one. That's a good one. Yeah, they, it was, it was the, I think it was like the kickoff to the ni- 2001 but, provincial election. They had like a 1971, like an old beater towed onto the legislature grounds yeah and you know were, you know adam so it's a bit of a sensitive topic for me because i work for stockwell day as his press secretary <laughs> for I'm, I'm so sorry Ryan. no no that's okay but i want to make one observation so, about so was the ski do idea yours or ski-do no, idea not yours? at the time i was no. i was a kid i was 20 <laughs> you know it's interesting he was doing that right after or within the context of jean chrétien going skiing he went skiing after a surgery or something like mm. that and Chrétien was showing Canadians how he's not this old fossil. How he's not older than was, dirt. Wasn't he like, was it like two years ago, Chrétien was like water skiing yeah. or something? Like 95 years old and he's still water skiing or something? So I don't, I'm, not, I'm not even really sure what my conclusion is, but it's interesting how context and other factors change how you feel about those types of things. Because every politician puts themselves into photo op type yeah. um, photo ops. For example, Leanne's favorite one to pick on... <laughs> Is from the 2012 election, and it was Alison Redford's skateboarding. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it that was, was so such an awkward terrible. image. That it, was bad. There was nothing. I can't fathom what they were even trying to do, but you could see how strategist Stephen Carter or whoever else decided we're going to show that she's vibrant and with it with the hip kids, and you know, like these things happen. Yeah. And then that one, for some for some reason, the jet ski one just became crystallized. Mm-hmm. But if you actually go through the calendar, things like that happen all the time. Mm-hmm. But it resonated with other perceptions and then it becomes or george w bush mission accomplished on the aircraft carrier <laughs> yeah right it becomes iconic for better or for worse I'm yeah think of other examples well the, the 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 one actually the one i was thinking of was is actually an elson redford one it was during the 2012 campaign and she was making a campaign stop on 124th street in edmonton to campaign with heather klimchuk in edmonton glenora and they were doing like a walk down the street they were going to a bunch of businesses they were in the duchess they were in cafe tiramisu and kind of stopping in and they stopped in in a there's like a karate or a taekwondo business there. Oh no! And it was all, it was a bunch of kids like doing their their drills and uh, and then the, these like little kids, little five year olds, were like breaking boards with their fingers and stuff. And then so they asked her, "Well, would you like to break a board?" Oh my god! And I have photos of this. I don't and it was her like this. it was her punching oh, yeah. a punching a board, and it just looked so awkward. It was. Uh, it I, has to resonate with perceptions of who the politician already is yeah like having like like allison redford on a on a skateboard is there's way too much cognitive dissonance that yeah. that exists to square yeah. that circle but see rachel notley going into like a a, a dojo and because right. she runs and yeah like she fitness yeah. is totally a huge part well, of that's, her life I, I think that's a thing like anytime rachel notley is around like we see it like before the ndp convention uh you see it basically anytime the cabinet is meeting in Calgary, there'll be a photo of her posted at like 6 a.m. talking about how she's just got back from like a 10-mile run. Yeah, and, she's, she, and she kicked Joe Cece's ass yeah, all exa- up and down the ex- trail. Exactly, because she's like a, a marathon yeah. person. She she runs marathons. 
So we can each think of cringeworthy things. Is there anything more cringe? I mean, everything. Campaigns nowadays make me cringe generally. Um, one of the sort of iconic ones was Jill Duceppe wearing the hairnet oh, in yeah. some factory tour. <laughs> yeah. And it was just so bad. Or there's another one that Leanne actually points out a lot of Ed Stelmack at a press conference. And they didn't block out the exit sign oh, above no. him. <laughs> So one of the one of the media f- photos was like Ed Stelmack exit. Oh, <laughs> it's no. just terrible, you know. Yeah, no. If you're if you're if your candidate is uh, is wearing any hat, make it be a hard hat. Yeah, and make make it be at like a construction site, not just like a hard hat. It's there's a there's a photo around. Yeah, there's exactly. a photo out there of me doing an election announcement wearing a hard hat. We're gonna try and find that everybody okay. one of these days. We have one more question from Spencer Bennett. This is an interesting one. So. He's asking, was the Alberta Party late paperwork filing, five-year ban, now reversal on the ban for some people? Just a publicity stunt, because they sure raised their profile. No, this this is like the worst nightmare of anyone <laughs> who's a campaign manager or a CFO or a yeah. candidate. This is like what you don't want to happen. I do not think it was a, uh, a stunt. Uh, I think it was a total mistake, obviously. And the, uh, and the s- message it is incompetence. Yeah. yeah. If yeah. you're going to do some sort of secret publicity stunt it's going to be about steven mandel climbing a ladder and saving 10 kittens yeah <laughs> it's not going to be like uh, he may not get to run because he missed a deadline yeah I, th- <laughs> I think everybody in the alberta party is regretting this that this has happened you know, and he's probably regretting it the most greg clark i don't know i, I again uh, you know i played the sa- that sound from that simpsons episode i think greg clark might be experiencing a little bit of schadenfreude right now even though it's his party you know oh i'm sure yeah Anyway, that's it for our uh, mailbag this week. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks to our producer, Adam Rosenhart, for helping us to put the show together once again. And a huge thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV, for supporting the show. Send us your feedback or ask us any questions you have for our next episode. You can get in touch with us uh, on Twitter at at Dayberta or on the Dayberta Facebook page, or you can send us an email at podcast at dayberta.ca. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.